Today, Robin interviews psychedelicist and playwright Rich Orloff, and we talk about the great American gaslighting. All this and more on The Lipscape. I'm Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and Mary is having internet problems today, which really sucks. So let's get right into three random facts and the news. So fact number one is my cat, Groot, really likes to eat elastic, and she keeps destroying finished masks. And <laughs> it's not really funny, but it is funny <laughs> It's very upsetting, especially if you do all this work and you put the thing down and you turn around and you turn back and the cat is taking a bite and the elastic is broken. Oh. Um, she, can, she, can, she can sever elastic in one bite. The last time she did this, you know, you could, if you, if you tried to put the ends of the broken bit together, you can see that it's much shorter than its mate on the mask and you realize the cat has eaten elastic and and that can be a problem so that's scary actually it's first of all it's weird that it tastes good like i can't figure out why <laughs> she would think that was a good thing to eat. i'm thinking it's more of a texture you know be. like she needs to chew on something uh, i don't know yeah or something. yeah but so i sent my spouse to the litter box to look at cat poop <laughs> because <laughs> he gets all the great jobs <laughs> i know i know but he got back at me because he, he came up to the bedroom with a paper towel demanding I look at this thing. And he wouldn't tell me what it was. And it was two pieces of cat poop that were connected with a piece of elastic. <laughs> so at least at least it's at least it's getting passed through the cat and not like causing a blockage, which which was the real fear. Because yeah. those kind of things are it, surgery and and cats having surgery is not fun. Um, no, no, that's good. I'm glad she's okay. And yes. I hope, hope she doesn't ruin uh, any more masks for you. Yeah, I, I just and and there was one other piece of elastic that was still attached to her butt and also another poop <laughs> on the end. And that one <laughs> did not make it in the litter box, sadly. So yeah, I, I'm hoping we're I'm hoping we're done with this with this stage of her of her development. Yeah, I had a dog once that had some serious uh some similar <laughs> <laughs> similar uh happenings with yeah. plastic bags so i think oh. it tasted like ice cream or something it was oh my god <laughs> he survived it was all good but yuck <laughs> yeah, when it ended up at the other end it was no fun okay right. <laughs> anyway <laughs> so speaking of uh toilet facts <laughs> speaking of poop okay <laughs> another another fact is that um you know, everyone was talking about the toilet paper shortage and complaining that people were hoarding toilet paper and all of that. And that, although a lot of people did buy a bunch of toilet paper in the beginning of this whole crisis. Yeah, except for me, and I'm running low. Okay. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully you'll have good luck, uh, I think, shopping tomorrow or whenever you're I going. I hope so, yes. Yeah. One of the issues that I was hearing in a, a WBUR 
discussion is that it's actually more about supply chain than mm. people just like hoarding toilet paper. So what basically they said that the toilet paper that you use at home and the toilet paper that's industrial, that's like in rest stops and offices and that's commercial. Sort of thing. Yeah. Commercial. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Commercial things are the giant rolls. Yeah. Some of them are giant. They're two very different supply chains. So basically it's that the companies that make these things are different. And oh, wow. everybody right now is buying all the home version of toilet paper because they're not spending time at work <laughs> going there <laughs> or whatever. So <laughs> So, uh, you know, paper, the home game, right? Exactly. So it's not, it's not financially sound for most of these companies to like make a big changeover and start making the home version of toilet paper. <laughs> so it's like that's why you're seeing less on the shelves. So okay, because humans are using the same amount of toilet paper, but it's a different kind, and the difference between not using the commercial stuff and using the domestic stuff is what's causing the shortages. Exactly. Exactly. So, so when we get back to going to the office, everybody needs to take their dumps there. <laughs> that could be a solution. Or at I least mean, most of the people I know, like I can't take a shit at work. I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> so it's like, but sometimes nature happens, doesn't it? I, I mean, know. It's sometimes not like, not like you I, try to do it, but I have I know people that come home to poop. So instead of doing it at work, so <laughs> okay. So what's <laughs> fact number three? Fact number three it is not about poop. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> and it's a very weird segue. So if you were a, around in the seventies at all, you would have seen the show The Waltons, which is you know. It was just this very homespun kind of country living family show. And like old time, like it wasn't quite Little House on the Prairie, but it was almost Little right. House on the Prairie. They were very, the yeah, they were like in the same, of, yeah, same <laughs> era. Exactly. So I was reading a um, one of the groups on Facebook that's for bisexual history, and there was a documentary about the Waltons, like reunion show or whatever, or, or a documentary about them, the characters or the actors getting actors. back together. <laughs> and they mentioned that Will Gear, who played Grandpa Walton, was openly bisexual. And I was like, oh, it's cool. So I watched that little uh, segment of the documentary, and I just sort of got caught in the web reading about him. And it turns out he was really quite radical. He was actually one of the people blacklisted in the 50s for being uh, connected to the Communist Party. And um, he dated or was partnered with Harry Hay, who is, um, he was a very well-known gay activist who uh, was one of the uh, originators of the Medicine Society and the Radical Fairies, which I didn't know that he was wow. involved in that as well. Yeah. So it was an interesting it's interesting read. I sort of getting caught in the web reading about all these different <laughs> people. <laughs> and I just, I had no idea. So that was pretty awesome for Grandpa Walton. So. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, those are some facts. <laughs> and here is all the news. Yo, what up? This is the poet known as Analysis. And you're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. This is what you need. Don't miss an episode. Hello, 
We want to thank you so much for listening to The Leftscape and for being someone out in the world thinking about, talking about, and crafting the shape of progressive conversation. We love creating this show for you, and we hope you find value in the discussions we bring to the table. If you do, please take a moment right now, go to your Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. If you can, make it five stars. Good reviews really help us reach more people engaged in politics and culture like you. Thanks so much for helping us get the word out about the Leftscape. Well, I am very happy to be here with Rich Orloff. Uh, Rich is an author and performer of It's a Beautiful Wound, which is an autobiographical monologue about his journey in psychedelic-assisted underground therapy. Uh, he is also a playwright. He's uh, the author of 18 full-length plays and of over 80 short plays, which is amazing. And he, uh, well, yeah, they've received 2,000 productions on six continents and even a staged reading on Antarctica. So he's uh, done a lot of amazing stuff. And I'm just really pleased to have you here. Hi, Rich. Good to be here, Robin. Yes. Awesome. So first, I guess I just want to ask you, you know, we're in very weird times. We're recording this on April 4th. And uh, how, how are you? How are you doing? You know, it varies. Um, I think one of the things I've learned is that, you know, I can be multiple things at the same time or to go back and forth between two states. For the most part, most of the day, I'm actually feeling surprisingly calm and accepting of all this. And I think my frankly, my journey with psychedelics has sort of helped me prepare for this. Um, and of course, then there are moments where I'm just freaking out and frantic and scared and all that. And similarly, I just, you know, I think I've gotten better just sort of accepting those moments and letting them flow through me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. I'm, uh, I don't know. How are <laughs> I don't you? think I have anything quite as eloquent to say. I'm just, uh, I have my moments and mostly I'm just doing the next thing that's in front of my face to do. So I've got a lot of work. I'm trying to keep busy. That's about it. It, you know? it, it took me a while um, as the crisis started. And I should let your listeners know, I'm, I'm calling you from New York, um, what's now the epicenter. Um, and there were a few days where I wanted to like get back to business as usual. And like you, I'm a writer. I work at home. And that wasn't working. I was too stressed out for that. And then I realized this is a crisis and we sort of need to develop new rules for how to behave and how to feel during crises. And that sort of was a turnaround for me. And now I, it's almost like I want to take advantage of this um, challenging but really special time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, in the in the before times, as they've been called, I had the pleasure of seeing you perform It's a Beautiful Wound uh, last year for Philadelphia Psychedelic Society. And um, would you be willing to share a little bit of that? Sure. Um, let me explain to the listeners what it's about. It um, Several years ago, um, I decided to um, find a sitter um, who um, helps people with... Um, both MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy, and uh, sometimes with psilocybin, um, to go on trips under this person's supervision. I'll call this person Sandy, um, a 
gender-neutral name. And uh, I was motivated to do this, not just because I wanted the adventure of it, but because I feel like I sometimes go through life suffering from a kind of existential PTSD. And I've had therapy and done yoga breathing and tried all sorts of things and nothing was working. And since I had had a few, uh, shall we say, glorious recreational experiences, especially on MDMA, um, when I started reading about this kind of therapy, I believed in it. So, um, so I had the experience and uh, multiple sessions. Uh, I was hoping it would just take me a few, but it ended up taking me more. And being a writer at a certain point, I thought, I need to share my experience about it. So this is a short section from the middle of It's a Beautiful Wound. I drink the tea of three grams of mushrooms and eat the pieces at the bottom of the cup. I lay back and relax. The visuals become delightful. I tell Sandy, my sitter, I'm not seeing God, but I'm sure enjoying his light show. I also feel a lot of fear and resistance. So after a while, I swallow my capsule of MDMA. Shortly thereafter, it's as if I see with unprecedented clarity the damage my family did to me and how I bought into a paradigm that was so self-destructive. I see how as a child I constantly yearn for approval from a group of people who got their strength from not giving it to me. I became so fo focused on getting their approval that I dismissed almost all the other love and acceptance I've gotten in my life. This paradigm has controlled my mind. I see it and I let go. I don't try to let go and I don't struggle to let go. I just let go. I know this isn't okay, I'm healed now. I've taken a step beyond my trauma. I go deeper. I sense beyond my trauma there's a more genuine wound. And so with some fear, I dive down to access that wound. And I see, I see a very young scared infant who, who just wants to suckle to be held and who was shamed for it. The unmet hunger was the wound, but the shaming was the trauma. I'm beginning to feel enormously insecure. I ask Sandy, is it okay for me to go with the ride? Yes. Can you tell me again that it is okay to go with the ride? Yes. I really don't need them anymore, do I? No. Is it okay with you if I'm a complete failure? Yes. This feels like one of the most liberating moments of my life. If I'm not afraid of being a failure, my family has no power over me. I ask, is it really okay for me to let go of my family? Yes. Every time I think to give them up, I risk death. Sandy tells me, it's time. I breathe in the words and I'm bathed in light. It's beyond life is okay. It's a state one can't achieve through achievement. It's a state that's simple and divine and welcoming. It's a place where I go, oh, now I get it. I take a sip of water and say, I rejoice in water. The more I can rejoice in life itself, the less I will need them. <sighs> I feel like I need to just take a breath after that and just take it in. Thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. It was That's fun it. to hear the train roll by in the background as I was finishing. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. So experiences with psychedelics 
very pretty dramatically. And that really was a really powerful kind of moment of things coming together for you. Yes, what yes. is the overarching quality that you see that the, these drugs have that hold that potential benefit? Like what, what would you call that thing that happens? My individual experiences have varied widely. I, um, I chose one of the most of serene breakthrough sessions uh, for my excerpt. There was certainly a session where I went to deep fear and really got in touch with a primal place in me where I feel, you know, just sort of terrified and like, like I was a terrified infant completely alone. There have been other sessions that where I got sort of illuminating lessons. Often there's a voice that just sort of comes up with these sort of profound statements that I listen to and that Sandy writes down so I can just relax into the experience. So the individual experiences vary, but the overall arc is that this, I have the sense that I'm going deeper and deeper into a place inside me where there's wisdom and knowledge and where I actually have things sorted out. The drugs, especially MDMA, helps give creates a fearlessness, a willingness to go that deep to places that I think are normal defense mechanisms prevent us from going. The mushrooms, on the other hand, are much more surreal, almost transpersonal kind of experience where, uh, frankly, you know, there's once where I felt I was truly in the presence of God and other times where I didn't feel like that strongly, but I just got the sense of what spirituality truly is. And it wasn't about reading about it or thinking about it. It was truly having a spiritual experience and thinking that God, not necessarily the God that we read about growing up or were taught, but that there is this sort of entity that's larger than us that is rooting for me and rooting for all of us. Mm, beautiful. Thanks. It's hard to know what to <laughs> ask about that. And, and well, there, I, I guess the thing, it's kind of weird, I'll say, to sort of say that and then realize, you know, on the good days, I actually remember that, you know, and certainly not every day and not every hour is a good day. You know, remembering these moments as we're living our daily life and, you know, we're dealing with sort of the hassles of paying bills and human interaction, it's challenging. The One of the joys of performing this show, which I've now performed, I think, 37 times, is it takes me back there and reminds me of these lessons. One of the reasons I think it's important to have a spiritual practice, and there are many different paths one can take, is because, you know, the stresses of life are so deep and constant that I think we need to be reminded of these truths. We need to go to that calm, serene, extraordinary place that it's easy to lose track of in daily living. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to say you were descriptions of of the realizations and, and also the falling away from it feels very much like what happens in my meditation practice and mm -hmm. my chanting practice. It's a practice of remembering in a lot yes. of ways, you know. How have your experiences informed your work in general? Do you feel like you've gained insights that influence other plays or, or a shift in focus that has had an overall change in your I, work? I get that question and the sort of the surprising answer is, generally speaking, nothing that I've noticed. Most of my plays I'd already begun working on before I'd had this experience. This has just been the last few years. So I think my writing, my playwriting is pretty much the same. 
I have noticed that over the last year, I've started writing prayers, kind of poem prayers. And yeah, I didn't do that before. So I think the part of me that is pulled in that direction is very new. When I started this experience, it was to deal with psychological problems. I never expected it to be a spiritual experience. I didn't particularly want it to be a spiritual experience. It's been one of the biggest surprises um, of this journey. Mm-hmm. So earlier you did mention that some of your experiences really helped you for right now, for the time oh, yes. that we're dealing with this pandemic and, and, and isolation for a lot of people. I think my experiences have helped me in, in two ways. I've had a few experiences on ayahuasca that separate from the ones that I've talked that the MDMA and psilocybin experiences I talk about in the play. And yeah, you know, some of them have been very challenging. Some of them just take me to a place where I'm just filled with sort of dread and anguish and I get stuck there for, for hours. I'm willing to have those experiences because other experiences take me to a place of bliss and well, for example, there's one time, yeah, I was just flowing with the journey and relaxing into it. And suddenly I just saw the word blessed sort of emblazoned in my mind, like in bright neon bold letters. It was not subtle. And huh. that sense of being... <laughs> neon blessing, huh? <laughs> yes. You know, kind of, you know, like, like that 2001 <laughs> type of, you know, where the, just the colors are just, a, you know, wafting into your consciousness. And I felt like I not only was blessed, but I got what really means to be blessed. It's not just, you know, like a pat on the back or, you know, that's really nice. It's a true sort of sense that some, and this is always sort of strange to put into words, but some entity larger than ourself is sort of has our back. That doesn't mean there won't be death or pain, but that there's this other layer to what we go through of being blessed that is just profound and soothing. And going through these days of, of, of challenging times and just just makes me more appreciative of every breath I take, literally. Um, I was exposed to the virus a few weeks ago. Mm. And so I, when I found out that someone I had spent a whole weekend with um, had the virus, this was a, a group of us that had gotten together, I freaked out for a while and really pulled in and friends of mine reminded me I need to go out for walks. And fortunately, I live just a couple blocks from the Hudson River, and there's a large promenade. And so I went out, and fortunately, I found some old face masks that I have from that I didn't, hadn't used at Burning Man. So I put the, put one of them. Oh, that's on. right. These are for the sand storms, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> who knew that my, I've been to Burning Man five times? Who knew that my experience there would have come in handy here? So I, after feeling incredibly stressed and having this cabin fever just for 24 hours, going out and walking along the Hudson River. The, this sounds corny to say, but the, rev- the river never looked so beautiful. I never appreciated sky and the clouds in the sky. And that feeling has stayed with me. And you know, I'll never be able to compare the life I have with the life I would have had if I hadn't had this psychedelic journey. But I do feel like I'm blessed and I want to acknowledge the, the sheer blessing of life, um, especially this time where I know not all people have that. So um, yeah, every time I leave my apartment and take a walk, it 
it is profoundly soothing. I have friends who go through the complete day just filled with fear and panic, and I feel for them. I don't judge them, but I'm aware they just can't access the place that I'm lucky enough to be able to access. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And have you just, it, it, I, I'm not even sure what the protocol is when someone, when you know you were in the company of someone who had the coronavirus, do you, do you, do you isolate completely for a time period or? For two weeks, other than going out to exercise and you, um, I was completely in my apartment. I didn't mm-hmm. go shopping. Um, I'm lucky I had some neighbors shop for me. Wow. The, but yes, I, you know, it's, it's, in some ways, it's not too different from what my life is now because I still spend most of my day at home and I still wear a mask whenever I go out. But I was that much more diligent. And especially in the beginning, you know, I would take one walk at midnight when pretty much everyone is gone just to know I, I didn't want to spread the virus. I didn't know if I had the virus or not, but I knew that there are asymptomatic carriers and that I really had to avoid all human contact for two weeks. It's cl- yeah, you know, my life now is close to that, but I get my own groceries and things. <laughs> oh, that's good. You're out of the official quarantine. Um, yes, that's yeah. a scary experience. You know, it was, and and again, that flip side of when the two weeks had passed, um, I celebrated by doing laundry. I hadn't gone into my apartment building's laundry room for two weeks. My laundry had really piled up because. You know, it wasn't just two weeks of laundry. I hadn't prepared for having to quarantine. So to do laundry, which is, you know, not something most of us look forward to doing, um, again, felt like a blessing. I wrote this very short prayer based on the true experience that night. Perfect. The other night in my building's laundry room, a woman sighed to me about having to do laundry. I told her that I had been self-quarantined for two weeks and I'd been looking forward to the moment when the two weeks had passed and I could enter the laundry room again. Thank you, God, for the blessing of laundry. Thank you for the blessings of washers and dryers, of detergent and water, of electricity and heat. Forgive me for not appreciating them enough. Forgive me for taking things for granted. Forgive me for any moment I'm not filled with awe. Thank you for the blessings of everyday miracles. And let us say amen. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> without drugs, I would have never gone there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice, but this of depth of appreciation I have for these simple things like doing laundry, uh, for being able to take a walk, um, that feels different than I experienced it a few, than I experienced life a few years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what do you know about the research that's happening now? I know that, that there are trials that use like small amounts of MDMA and other types of things to, to help people in medical situations and psychological experiences. Do you, what do you, um, yeah. I, I certainly read about it a lot. It, it, reading about it was one of the things that made me look for my own experience of it. The, the underground experience I have is really follows the protocol of government-sponsored MDMA experiments and government-sponsored psilocybin experiments. The government isn't doing these experiments. Uh, places like Johns Hopkins and other schools are. But the results have been uh, enormously helpful, especially for people with intense PTSD 
and for people who just have fear of dying, for people who have deep-rooted anxieties that they can't work beyond any, in any other way. It, let me quickly add, it's not a panacea, you know, uh, but it, has, it doesn't work for everybody. The per- success rate varies from, I think, somewhere between about two-thirds to three-quarters of, of the participants, but it has been very helpful for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, I find it hopeful that maybe it will, some uses of it that are found to be safe enough can become legal and, and in use for, you know, as another tool that's possible for people. And that's it. It's not a panacea, but it's been an incredibly useful tool. It, it took me a while before I went from the, you know, how many time, more times do I need to take this before I will be done? to, oh, this is a tool I can use the rest of my life. The same way prayer and other spiritual practices are. Uh, I don't take these things recre- recreationally. The I do take them to journey. And that intent creates a different experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I, I do want to add as we're having this conversation, again, I, I want to remind the listeners that the sense of calm I'm feeling now as we're as we're talking about all this, it's not constant. And I mean, yesterday I went to the supermarket and just you know being around people and you know and who touched this you know bag of frozen vegetables before I did and what's on it. I still have all those feelings. And yeah, I, I came home and I was exhausted from it. Wiped down the bags and as I was going through this, I accepted that. And again, that acceptance, I wasn't freaking out about freaking out. These, I'm aware we have places in ourselves. And, and this actually was an insight. Almost insight doesn't seem the right word. This was something that was a gift that was given to me during a ketamine experience. Again, under, in this case, a doctor's supervision. Where I suddenly realized that places like fear and hate and love are all just places in our consciousness. Our consciousness is bigger than them. So when I go myself, when I find myself going to a place of fear, like I did buying groceries, I just accept that it's a place in me. It's not all of me. And that shift in perspective, again, has been enormously useful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good information, too. I definitely... I'm trying to psych myself up to do some grocery shopping tomorrow morning. I'm hopefully going early before people are, are a lot there, you know, and stuff. And it's, it's a, it's a task to get my mind to think about this thing that was such a normal everyday thing, you know, a month ago or so. And that's, uh, you know, so I think for me, it's about thinking of the practical things that I can do to minimize any problems. But it's also, it's good to be reminded of like that spiritual kind of mental, mental preparation aspect too, which we can all benefit exactly. from. Exactly. I, I see these things, almost every kind of interaction once when I leave my apartment is sort of a combination of martial arts um, and spiritual practice. I don't want to infect people. I don't, I want to respect the divinity in other people. And at the same time, there's something almost fun about you know, like weaving and keeping six feet away from people and doing all and just sort of almost playing with that kind of energy, uh, and you know this may just be a way my mind is making it easier to cope with the situation. But sort of turning it into that kind of game and trying to keep that alertness actually sort of 
makes the adventure of going out easier to deal with. Right, right. So is there anything else you want to add to this? Yes. I'm aware as we're having this conversation that, yeah, I've, I've mostly been avoiding the subject of death. And I certainly do think about it during this time. And one of the other gifts that I think I've gotten from psychedelics is, you know, I'm in no hurry to die. I would prefer to keep having this adventure. But mostly, I don't think I'm as afraid of death as I used to be. I, you know, I want it to take its time, but there are worse things than death. And I do have the sense that that my soul will live on in some way. I don't know how. It feels very abstract to me. I feel like I'm almost like my soul will enter this sort of large soup of souls. Um, and who knows what will happen thereafter. Soup of souls. That's a good band name. <laughs> yes, I'll have to remember that if I ever get into rock music. But mostly it does, it, you know, it, it does give me comfort that, yeah, I see all these people just sort of panicked about death. And I'm thinking like, well, it's going to happen sometime, and I don't know when. And and I guess, and also as a you know, playwright, I've, I'm really used to living with uncertainty. I've never been able to plan my life that far ahead. So, you know, if and when death happens, I hope I will have the strength and calmness to just welcome it as another transition. Mm. Thanks. That's that's. It's hard to think about. And it's kind of an ideal state to be in about it. Thank so, you. It, thank you for that insight. My pleasure. It is a hard place to go, which is why I was reluctant to mention it earlier. But at the same time, again, I think I've developed, because of the experiences that I had, I think I've developed this strength to go there, not 24-7. But um, I actually like going to places that I'm scared to go. And contemplating death is one of those places. So since so many of us are stuck at home right now, or some some of us are alone, some of us are recuperating from COVID-19, some are caring for other people, um, are there plays of yours that you could recommend for reading so people can have something to do while we're inside and trying to just feel, you know, in balance? Thanks for asking. Uh, there is a one-act comedy of mine called The Whole Shebang, which is actually my most popular one-act comedy that I wrote several years ago. And uh, the premise of it is, what if God is just basically this sort of college student going for his MU degree, Master of the Universe? And the whole, <laughs> the whole creation of the heavens and the earth is just his master's thesis. And he has to present it to his professors. And all this takes place on another dimension. So um, it's a fun comedy about a sort of different way of looking at God. Again, I wrote before my spiritual experiences. But now I can look back and see how I've always enjoyed playing with different concepts of God and existence. So I recommend that. Um, and then what I is also, the title again? The Whole Shebang. The Whole Shebang, okay. And uh, many of my plays are published by Playscripts. And you can just go to playscripts.com and type in my name in their search engine and all of my plays will come up and you can read excerpts of all of them and decide which you'd like. Most of my plays are comedies, not all. Um, so, And some of them escape are escapists. Some of them have a little more meaning. So I, I think I've written plays for everybody's mood. 
That's great. And I feel like, you know, there are times when I'm not in the mood for comedy right now, but sometimes it really saves my life. So it's uh, it's a great it's a great gift. Thanks. Right now. It's also one more way of just of coping with things that are so big that, um, yeah, being able to laugh at them helps. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rich Orloff. It has been great speaking with you, and I'm really glad you got to uh, join us on The Leftscape. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this conversation, Robin. Wendy here, letting you know that I'm making masks to assist you in your social distancing while you're outside. I'm using my weird and wacky quilting fabric that I've been hoarding for years so you can let your geek flag fly while protecting yourself and your community while you shop for essentials or walk your dog. Check out my Facebook page, Wendy Cards, for current availability. Proceeds from mask sales help support donations of masks to hospitals and first responders. That's facebook.com slash wendycards, W-E-N-D-Y-C-A-R-D-S. And thank you. Hello, this is Robin Renee. You can find me online at robinrenee.com, and my music is on iTunes, CD Baby, Pandora, Spotify, and elsewhere around the web. So check it out. And you can like me at facebook.com slash robinreneefan, tweet at me at spiritrocksexy, and follow me on Instagram at robinreneemusic. I would love to hear from you. I read this awesome essay on Medium last week, and it's called Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting by Julio Vincent Gambuto. And Julio, if you by any chance happen to hear this, we want you on the show. <laughs> I want to talk to you about this. I we'll really, have to really read do. that on his email. And- I, I have tried to contact him through Facebook, but... I think he's uh, he may be very popular and just ignores that. So anyway, I, I'll see if I can hit him up on Twitter because he's there too. So anyway, um, why is it awesome? It's because <laughs> well, let me let me excerpt a huge amount of this for you, so then you'll know. Pretty soon, as the country begins to figure out how we open back up and move forward, very powerful forces will try to convince us all to get back to normal. That never happened. What are you talking about? Billions of dollars will be spent on advertising, messaging, and television and media content to make you feel comfortable again. It will come in traditional forms, a billboard, a hundred commercials, and in the new media forms, a 2020-2021 generation of memes to remind you what you want again is normalcy. In truth, you want the feeling of normalcy, and we all want it. We want desperately to feel good again, to get back to the routines of life, 
to not lie in bed at night wondering how we're going to afford our rent and our bills, to not wake to an endless scroll of human tragedy on our phones, to have a cup of perfectly brewed coffee and simply leave the house for work. The need for comfort will be real and it will be strong. And every brand in America will come to your rescue, dear consumer, to help you take away that darkness and get life back to the way it was before the crisis. I urge you to be well aware of what is coming. So that's his opening paragraph. Mm -hmm. And um, he goes on to say, and I am not reading the whole thing. It may seem like I am, but I'm not. Um, it feels like important stuff. So I'm happy to really very hear important it. stuff. Um, he talks about various brands and a whole about marketing and what, what it's what the purpose of it is and everything brilliant marketers know how to rewire your heart and make no mistake the heart is what has been most traumatized this last month we are as a society now vulnerable in a whole new way what trauma has shown us though cannot be unseen a carless los angeles has clear blue skies as pollution has simply stopped in a quiet New York, you can hear the birds chirp in the middle of Madison Avenue. Coyotes have been spotted on the Golden Gate Bridge. These are postcard images of what the world might be like if we could find a way to have a less deadly daily effect on the planet. What's not fit for a postcard are the other scenes we have witnessed. A healthcare system that cannot provide basic protective equipment for its front line. Small businesses and very large ones that do not have enough cash to pay or their rent or workers sending over 16 million people to seek unemployment benefits. A government that has so severely damaged the credibility of our media that 300 million people don't know who to listen to for basic facts that can save their lives. The cat is out of the bag. We as a nation have deeply disturbing problems. They are problems we ignore every day, not because we're terrible people or because we don't care about fixing them, but because we don't have time. Sorry, we have other shit to do. The plain truth is that no matter our ethnicity, religion, gender, political party, the list goes on, nor even our socioeconomic status, as Americans, we share this. We are busy. It is very easy to close your eyes to a problem when you barely have enough time to close them to sleep. The greatest misconception among us, which causes deep and painful social and political tension every day in this country, is that we somehow don't care about each other. White people don't care about the problems of black America. Men don't care about women's rights. Cops don't care about the communities they serve. Humans don't care about the environment. These couldn't be further from the truth. We do care. We just don't have the time to do anything about it. Maybe that's just me. But maybe it's you too. Well, the treadmill you've been on for decades just stopped. Bam. And that feeling you have right now is the same as if you'd been thrown off your Peloton bike onto the ground. What the holy fuck just happened? <laughs> I hope you might consider this. What happened is inexplicably incredible. It is the greatest gift ever unwrapped. Not the deaths, not the virus but the great pause. It is, in a word, profound. Please don't recoil from the bright light beaming through the window. 
I know it hurts your eyes. It hurts mine, too. But the curtain is wide open. What this crisis has given us, it is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see ourselves and our country in the plainest of views. At no other time ever in our lives have we gotten the opportunity to see what would happen if the world simply stopped. Here it is. We're in it. Stores are closed. Restaurants are empty. Streets and six-lane highways are barren. Even the planet itself is rattling less. True story. And because it is rarer than rare, it has brought to light all of the beautiful and painful truths of how we live. And that feels weird, really weird, because it has never happened before. If we want to create a better country and a better world for our kids, and if we want to make sure that we are even sustainable as a nation and as a democracy, we have to pay attention to how we feel right now. I cannot speak for you, but I imagine you feel like I do, devastated, depressed, and heartbroken. And this is, I didn't highlight this, but, um, and what a perfect time for Best Buy and H&M and Walmart to help me feel normal again. Mm -hmm. If I could just have that new iPhone in my hand, if I could rest my feet on a pillow of new Nikes, if I could drink a Vente Blonde vanilla latte or sip a Diet Coke, then this very dark feeling would go away. Anyhow, I skip a bit. Americanism is a force for good. It is not some villainous plot to wreak havoc and destroy the planet and all our souls along with it. I get it and I agree, but its flaws have been laid bare for all to see. It doesn't work for everyone. It's responsible for great destruction. It is so unevenly distributed in its benefit that three men own more wealth than 150 million people. Its intentions have been perverted and the protection it offers has disappeared. In fact, it's been brought to its knees by one pangolin. We have got to do better and find a way to a responsible free market. Until then, get ready, my friends. What is about to be unleashed on American society will be the greatest campaign ever created to get you to feel normal again. It will come from brands. It will come from government. It will even come from each other and it will come from the left and, and it will come from the right. We will do anything, spend anything, believe anything just so we can take away how horribly uncomfortable all of this feels. And on top of that, just to turn the screw that much more, will be the one effort that's ever greater, the all-out blitz to make you believe you never saw what you saw. The air wasn't really cleaner. Those images were fake. The hospitals weren't really a war zone. Those stories were hyperbole. The numbers were not that high. The press is lying. You didn't see people in masks standing in the rain risking their lives to vote. Not in America. You didn't see the leader of the free world push an unproven miracle drug like a late-night infomercial salesman. That was a crisis update. You didn't see homeless people dead on the street. You didn't see inequality. You didn't see indifference. You didn't see utter failure of leadership and systems. But you did. You are not crazy, my friends. And so we are about to be gaslit in a truly unprecedented way. 
It starts for a check for $1,200. Don't say I never gave you anything. And then it will be so big that it will be Big Lee. It will be a one-two punch from both big business and the big White House, inextricably intertwined now more than ever and being led by, as our luck would have it, a marketer in chief. Business and government are about to band together to knock us unconscious again. It will be funded like no other operation in our lifetimes. It will be fast. It will be furious and it will be overwhelming. The great American return to normal is coming. From one citizen to another, I beg of you, take a deep breath, ignore the deafening noise, and think deeply about what you want to put back into your life. This is our chance to define a new version of normal, a rare and truly sacred opportunity to get rid of the bullshit and only bring back what works for us, what makes our lives richer, what makes our kids happier, what makes us truly proud. We get to Marie Kondo the shit out of it all. We care deeply about one another. That is clear. That can be seen in every supportive Facebook post, in every meal dropped off for a neighbor, in every Zoom birthday party. We are a good people. And as a good people, we want to define on our own terms what this country looks like in 5, 10, 50 years. This is our chance to do this. The biggest one we will we have ever gotten and the best one we will ever get. <sighs> and to close That's, it up, yeah. almost, almost. We can do that on a personal scale in our homes and how we choose to spend our family time on nights and weekends, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, and what we choose to spend our dollars on and where. We can do it locally in our communities, in what organizations we support, in what truths we tell, and what events we attend. And we can do it nationally in our government, in which leaders we vote in and to whom we give power. If we want cleaner air, we can make it happen. If we want to protect our doctors and nurses from the next virus and protect all Americans, we can make it happen. If we want our neighbors and friends to earn a dignified income, we can make that happen. If we want millions of kids to be able to eat if suddenly their school is closed, we can make that happen. And yes, if we just want to live a simpler life, we can make that happen too. But only if we resist the massive gaslighting that is about to come. It's on its way. Look out. Okay, that's... <laughs> that is really profound. And... Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about this time is, is like, it's like a Zen experience because I really can slow down. I mean, we have to slow down to a certain extent and it's about just sitting and unnecessarily, I mean, I think my initial impulse was to just, okay, I can just be peaceful or something, you know, but, but really the heart of meditation is seeing just sitting still and seeing, just being present and, and, and whatever you see, whatever you feel, whatever, you know, and a lot about being present is, is actually looking at reality, you know, <laughs> seeing, seeing what's actually there, which in a lot of ways, that's, well, that's really what this article is saying, yeah. um, that it would be easy to 
you know, and I've had those thoughts. I'm like, oh my God, I just want to go sit in the cafe and just be, have a normal, like something like what my normal day was. Yeah. And that is that impulse to like, just make it not go away, but like just have some semblance of what was. And I like the idea of really, okay, things aren't like they were, what, what now? Yeah. And, 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 and we do have this huge opportunity to change things. And I'm not exactly sure how, how we grab it, like at a national level, but certainly on a individual level, you can, you know, and then it grows out from there, you know? Mm-hmm. I definitely I, notice how much crap I don't need to consume. Mm, yeah. You know? I, I, it, that's the other thing. It's like my bank account and my credit card bill, you know, it's half of what it normally, my bank account, there's a lot of money in there. And that usually indicates, and I see that it goes, Oh, wait a minute. Did I forget to pay something? Mm -hmm. Uh, which I probably did. I I mean, maybe this is all going to go for taxes and (laughs) the minute I figure out my tax stuff. But I think a lot of it is, you know, we're not, you know, going out every day and dropping 10, 20 bucks on some rando shit. Right. I'm really grateful for seeing how I don't, you know, I always knew I didn't need to do that. You know, I like to, I tend to spend money on food because I get depressed and anxious and I need to get out and just do something or have something, you know? And I'd rather take the time to look at, well, now that I can't do that, what, what can I do with those feelings instead, you know, (laughs) which is good. And I love to cook and I love to, you know, do other things, but that's, that's like a micro example, but it's, it's true in terms of reordering your brain to figure out what 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 you actually need as opposed to what you're the easy fix for something you know and it's also you know it's also showing how much work can be done from you know as a as a telejob as you know from telecommuting mm-hmm. which ends up saving companies money because they don't have to maintain office space for you it saves Fuel i mean that and roads all that telecommuting is why i am able to drive a 17 year old car Mm. because it it only has a hundred thousand miles on it because i've worked from home for so long mm-hmm. you know uh so so it it saves in and i'm and i'm not driving so i'm not putting co2 or whatever in the air and i'm not wasting gasoline and i'm not yeah i guess for the auto industry it ain't so great but for me i don't have car payments you know i don't have it like that car needs to be replaced fairly soon but you know what i mean yeah, I mean, holding on to things longer. Yeah, it would be great. You know, I mean, I drive. I drive a lot when I have places to go. But I could see, <laughs> I could see spending that time and energy going to see friends and working on the podcast or doing something that feels particularly relevant, as opposed to like I need to go to like five stores today for nothing really <laughs> that I need. You know. That's true, you know. But one of the things, the things that I'm thinking about, you know, there's just so many issues that are coming to light in this experience, and the the racial disparity that COVID nineteen makes apparent is really scary to me and upsetting. 
And I mean, a lot of it has to do with, you know, it ties in with income and people who are essential workers or service workers and things like that are disproportionately people of color, you know, and so people are getting more affected by this. So it's a horrible way to have a stark in your face example of what's happening. Yeah. I only read the, see the breakdowns during Murphy's daily briefings and so it's and just stop watching this every day. I, I don't feel like I don't that watch helps every me. every day, but I watched it today. I watched a little bit of it today because mm-hmm. they show that slide of the counties and the and the and the doubling rates and the social distancing is working because our doubling rates are stretched out now in a lot of places, mm-hmm. like especially you know up north where where I am um, and the and the New York area. So it's working, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it was, it's like, you know, more men are dying than women. Right. You know, it's 58% men and 41% women. I guess it would be 59, 41. But it is, if you are over 70, 60% of the deaths are people over 70. Mm-hmm. Although there are, you know, cohorts that are younger uh i think the youngest is like in the 20 they have they have some teenager i think somewhere one yeah Yeah. i know that pulmonologist guy said he never he hasn't seen anybody younger than 17 Mm -hmm. being hospitalized and and dying is is two different things so um you know and that's the other thing they're starting to talk about how many people you know are have been released from the hospital now you know, mm-hmm. and you know, those numbers are more than the people who are dying. So that's a good thing. That is a beautiful thing. And it's good to hear that because I think, yeah, I think we're finally, finally hearing the worst disaster numbers for right. a while. Yeah, we, need know. To know, we need to know who's recovered. You yeah. know, that's it's important to know. So here's a question. <sighs> you know, I feel like I am predisposed to wanting to be still and sit and look at difficult things because it's part of my practice, you know? And I wonder, will this experience, like, will this experience be jarring enough to get other people to do that that maybe aren't, don't normally think in those terms? I'm, I'm hoping so, and I don't know. I don't, know. I, you know, I'm sure there are going to be people that will welcome the gaslighting with open arms probably well that's yeah or not even really recognize it that's the problem with it you know but i guess i'm hoping that people some people who uh, have practical who think practically and creatively will have that will listen to that article you know, because I feel like I'm, I can think about things and recognize things and witness things. And I don't know, I feel short on solutions sometimes. Then make art, you know, that art will, art is a way to combat the gaslighting. True. You know, um, my friend Angie's doing this series of incredibly powerful paintings and it, 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 she has to, because she reads the news and it, it comes out of her. She's like, she does these paintings, like 
that are dedicated to people who have died and they and like they're like there's one called Milan and and one called New York and mm. and they're really 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 intensely powerful paintings. I'm really hoping that she can get them seen by a wide audience because you know they need to be seen. Yeah. No, that does art does change. Yeah, and minds and attitudes, and, and it has that power. That's yeah, and, and that's that's one of your superpowers. You know, <laughs> Thank you. you are an artist, and use it. You write some songs. You know, you were talking about you wanting to write songs, so write some songs. Write the uh, write the the twenty first century version of you know this land is your land, or you know what I'm. You know, what's his name? <laughs> Peter Tiger, oh, yeah. Yes, be be the modern Pete Seeger, you know. It's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that's a mighty big Yeah, I know. Let me, here, let me let me just throw on the wear <laughs> these boots, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, but um and I also do feel I, I think I am also inspired to do some different types of activism too, because economics really are a big part of why things are so fucked up, you know? Oh, yeah. And right. and that's an aspect of protest and discussion that I haven't really been part of that much because I felt like that's, it's not my, it's not my primary, like, strength, I guess. The face of activism. But it's huge. May have to change or. <sighs> I think it does have to change. I mean, definitely. I mean, how can we, how can we have 2 million people marching in at the Washington mall. Right. For yeah. Example. No, you know, and I've always felt that that kind of activism inspires activists. Like, I feel like <laughs> that's the main focus of it, that you get to see how many people are having the same feelings and thoughts and frustrations and yeah, it can I get think, people to vote or get people to start a smaller group where they're doing something. I, I don't know. I'm thinking more in terms of, of uh, the early labor movement where it got violent because yeah. it's it's if if they're trying to force us back to where we were before i think it's too broken it can't be fixed you can't just glue this back together and expect it to just work right no because i mean we see we see really where the bricks are and yeah that's a good thing I mean, we've, you know, we're, we're, we're at the edge of the, the, the second great depression, you know, because yeah. it's, we have, I, I've seen pictures of, of cars lined up at a food bank, which I guess is the 21st century version of a bread line, you know? Um, so, so the first we, step is seeing, and I think that article is right. I'm looking forward to reading all of it. Yeah, and coming up with my own ways of sort of checking myself and not just falling into consumer land as soon as we can start doing things like that again or or just, you know, I mean, I think it's okay to have some comfort in life, but... Toilet paper and hair dye, that's all I need. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> But yeah, but we can do better. And I think, I think we will. And a lot of us will find ways to do that. All right. Well, uh, tune in in two weeks.
or listen to our old shows if you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs>